Jake Weisman, cold open, take 14. Okay. Hey, Jake, how are you? Oh, I'm doing great, Jamie. You're uh, an amazing talent and um, one of my favorite young up and coming uh, comedians and uh, your career is flourishing. And it's an honor to have you up here in our new podcast studio. Jamie, (laughs) thank you very much. I appreciate it. It's an honor to be here. Totally. So Jake, as a comedian that goes up all the time, uh, you deal with all sorts of audiences. How do you feel as a performer when someone is on their phone in the audience? I would say I'm of maybe two minds about it. One is I get it. Like phones are addictive and it's my job to be more interesting than the phone. So if I'm not more interesting than the phone, then look at the phone. But of course, there's the other part of it where it's like, fucking pay attention to me. Like, I'm on stage, you've paid money to be here, and you should be listening to me. So get the fuck off the phone, and often I will attack that person verbally and be like, listen to me. Why are you on the phone? What what are you texting about? What are you tweeting about? Um, but I also get it. I do think it is my job to captivate the audience, but I think also most people don't really give you a chance uh, to to be captivating. So it is frustrating. And I do appreciate when people are not on phones. That's obviously much preferable. Sure. And how about comics on their phones? <sighs> That's a tough one. I mean, I obviously don't like it because you want to think that comedians are paying attention to you and respectful. And also they understand how frustrating it is to see people on their phones when you're on stage. But I also get it because if they're going up later, maybe they're looking at a joke or they're writing a joke down or they're getting anxious and they're wasting time on social media or anything. I do think in general, if you tell a a comic to get off their phone, especially at the improv, which is a club, I think they should get off their phone. And I think it's more disrespectful at a club than maybe at the back of an alt show. Um, There's a specific lighting where you can see like the light coming off the phone and it's incredibly distracting. All right. Thanks, Jake. Uh, Did did that work, Damien? Yeah, I think it I think it did. Okay, roll the theme song. Welcome to Gatekeeper, a podcast about booking from the bookers and gatekeepers who decide who's in, who's out. Also, there's other stuff. And now your host of Gatekeeper, artistic director of the Hollywood Improv, Jamie Clam. Welcome to Gatekeeper, everybody. My name is Jamie Flam. We got such a great episode for you today. Coming up in just a little bit, an amazing conversation with Cristela Alonso. I'm excited about that. In the meantime, I wanted to talk about a few things going on here at the club, the Hollywood Improv. I've mentioned it before in a couple of conversations, but one of our ongoing quests here at the Improv has been to make this more of a center for artist development. And so in the last few months, I started a show called Lab Work, where the intent was to put up young comics, uh, people I haven't seen, and be able to create some sort of pathway system here at the club. This past Sunday night was a really big night in that process where I took 10 comics who have been performing well at our open mics and on the showcase show and put them all on the main stage for a show to see what they could do with a five-minute set. Everyone performed wonderfully. It was really better than I could have ever even expected. And it really, I think, you know, set a great tone for what this club is doing. So I was really excited about that. And there will definitely be more of that to come. And it's been a recurring theme on this podcast. You know, how, how does a club help facilitate the forwarding of someone's career as a stand-up and as an artist? Now, that amazing showcase aside... There was an incident that happened in the showroom that I wanted to talk about because I think it could be a great learning moment for some of the young comics 
that are listening to this podcast regularly. Um, one of my greatest pet peeves as a booker, as someone that's in the room, as if you've listened to this podcast before, you know, is people talking in the showroom, people being on their phones, anything, of course, that could distract you from watching a show. Now, as the booker of the club, I was sitting in the back of the room, this packed room. There wasn't a, an empty seat in the house. Everyone's there to support their friends. And comics above anyone else should know that in this type of situation, you want to respect the people who are on stage. And it should be a foregone conclusion that when you go into a, a comedy showroom, you respect the room and you shouldn't be on your phone. So there's an empty seat next to me in the back of the room. And a comic, presumably, comes in and sits down next to me. And the show starts and he breaks out his phone and starts going through some texts. I tried to ignore it at first, but it became so distracting. Just seeing this little light shining next to me. I'm trying to watch and give my full attention to the comics that are on stage. If ever there was a show that I need to be paying attention as the booker of the club, writing notes for the comics so that I can give them feedback after the show, this was it. So all I can see next to me is this little flashing light on this phone. and I'm trying to ignore it, hoping that one of our door people will tell him to put it away. So that's not happening. And finally, I just have to take it into my own hands. And I turn next to him and I say, hey, man, do you mind turning your phone off? I need to be paying attention and it's really distracting. And this guy looks me in the eye and just stares me down, not giving me an answer. And then finally he says, are you serious? And I said to him, very serious. And then he just stared at me more. And it was scary. I didn't know what to do. I'm not good with these types of situations. All I could think about was him punching me in the face and there being a huge kerfuffle in the back of the room on this big night for the club and my reputation just being the booker that got punched by the guy for telling him to turn his phone off. He finally answered me and his answer was no. <laughs> he blatantly refused to turn his phone off in the showroom. He stared at me some more. I stared back at him. I asked him, are you a comic or did you come here to support one of your friends? And then upset, he turned and looked at the stage, trying to ignore me. So I followed suit and I stared at the stage, trying to ignore him. So I have a lot of things going through my head right now. First, my ego is saying, you're the booker of this club. You're going to take this shit from this kid? On top of that, I'm scared for my life. This guy's going to punch me to death. What happens if you get punched? Do I punch back? I don't even know how to punch. It's not my thing. And then I'm just in disbelief because of all the things you would stand your ground against. They, they tell you to pick your battles. This doesn't seem like a thing you would pick a battle over. I mean, you would turn your phone off at a, a movie theater. Why is this any different? This is a comedy club. There's something happening on the stage right there. Please be respectful. So his solution is to ask the person next to him to switch spots with him. So now I'm sitting next to someone new. I don't know who this person is. Is this his bodyguard? Is he there to protect him? Is he there to shield him so that he can look at his phone and I won't see the glare of the light in my eye? Is he going to punch me? The bottom line is I do not want to get punched. And all I can think about in this situation is getting punched in the face. Because if anyone's going to die from getting punched, it's me. I will be that booker that got punched in the face and died. That's how I died, was getting a big hand in my face because of a screen at a comedy show. A few minutes pass and I realize that the barrier between us is not going to be a threat. I'm starting to finally get back into the show. 
So Ken Gar, who's hosting the show and doing a great job of it with Avery Pearson, gets on stage and does something that I wish he hadn't, but he does it anyway. And he's like, hey, ladies and gentlemen, please give a round of applause and give it up for the artistic director of the Hollywood Improv who's made this whole night happen, Jamie Flam. Give it up for Jamie Flam in the back. And I see the entire showroom turn around and look at me and they're clapping and hooting and hollering and I'm embarrassed and that dies down. The show resumes. The guy that was the buffer between me and the guy that was going to punch me to death is now gone. And the puncher scooches over in the seats, taps me on the shoulder, looks me in the eye and says, I fucked up, didn't I? And I looked him back in the eye and I said, big time. Leaving the show that night, I actually felt bad for this guy who had honestly jeopardized his career by defending his right to be on his phone in the middle of a comedy show to the booker. So I think we all get the moral of this. I say it on every show. Be cool as fuck. And don't be on your phone and don't talk in the showroom. If someone politely asks you to do something that's already pretty common knowledge, just do it. Be a good person. You're distracting them. It's okay. This is off character. It's like a Jewish mom. But I'm trying something new. And I'm finding it doesn't work. But this, for me, is like my workout room. Where I try new stuff. That's how comedy works. Andrew, this would be a good place to put a funny sound effect to get us out of this really obnoxious organic thing that's just happened. Jamie, don't stop being so high on yourself. I think that the Jewish mom character is actually pretty funny. And if you work it out, you might actually have a little something you can perform on stage sometime. Ah, thanks, Adbot. I appreciate that. I disagree, but uh, appreciate the sentiment. Now do what you're programmed to do and tell me what I'm reading today. In an unprecedented move for this podcast, this episode is the fourth consecutive episode that's been sponsored by CISO, the Comedy Network, NBC. Wow, four consecutive episodes that they're sponsoring? I must be doing something right, huh? Don't get too excited. They bought all four in advance, and it's actually more of a network initiative, and it's going on all the podcasts who are not really that special. Oh. This episode is sponsored by CISO, and if you didn't know, CISO is a premium comedy streaming service. It's on demand, 24-7, streaming comedy anytime, anywhere. It is curated for the comedy connoisseur. That is my core demographic. If you're listening to this, you are a comedy connoisseur, or you mistakenly thought that this podcast was about gates, and uh, you're in for a rude awakening when I start talking about comedy. Anyway, uh, it's all original series, quotable classics, uh, next day late night stand-up specials, and more for only $3.99 a month. That is no joke. Three. 99 a month? If you go to the 99 cent store this month, just buy four less items and all of a sudden you have all this content at your disposal, including never before seen new originals. There's new comedy added every week and you can try it now for free. So why wouldn't you just try it out now? Because you can start as a guest. There's not even a credit card needed. Here's a fun, cool little thing. When I first got back to LA in 2006, I started doing the show called Garage Comedy. It was weird. It was wild. It was the scene. And it was hosted by this great gal named Val. 
and her partner at the time, Kula Velisek. And what a fun time it was. Well, she, in the 10 years since that happened, has now ascended to the point in her career where she's producing a show for CISO, a show she created called Bajillion Dollar Properties. And it's co-produced by her husband, Scott Ackerman. Uh, You might've heard that name before from a little show called Comedy Bang Bang. These great things are happening and so much more on the CISO network. So go to CISO.com and you're going to get all this great stuff and you're going to love it. Wow, Jamie, your ad reads just keep getting better and better. I really enjoyed that personal anecdote you shared about Kulop and her new show. Wow, it shows that you can really do anything this town if you put your mind to it and are persistent. Wow, Adbot, that was really inspired. Stop giving yourself a pat on the back. You programmed me to say that. Yeah, but I also programmed you to say to not give me a pat on the back. So, pat on my back. All right, hit me with a sound effect so we can get out of here. One of the most rewarding parts about booking a comic club is seeing opportunities open up for comics that you book. When they get that first big showcase, that first late night set, that first acting or writing gig, or even their first paid set, it's a source of pride and a reminder that hard work pays off. And sometimes you get to bear witness to a rise that could only be described as stratospheric when all the stars align at once. Such is the case with Cristela Alonso. When I first met Cristela five years ago, she was already on the up and up. She was several years into stand-up, and she was clearly becoming a killer. But in the matter of a couple of years, she went from headlining colleges to doing a set on Conan, getting her own 30-minute Comedy Central special, and then her own series on ABC called Cristela. Her career is a testament to working hard and the fact that you never know where your career is going to take you, and you have to be open to possibility at every turn. And this conversation we had was so inspiring. I left inspired as hell. And I hope that you will too. So, with no further ado, enjoy this conversation with Cristela Alonso. Adbot, anything else to add? Hey, Jamie, check out this cool new trick. Ugh. What the fuck, Adbot? I didn't not get punched by the dude at the improv to get punched by you. So this is what it feels like to get punched. Terrible. This is really fucking shitty. Hey everyone, my name is Jamie Flam, and welcome to Gatekeeper. <laughs> Are you Zool? <laughs> no, but we have an effect that goes on that that makes me sound like oh. Zool. Oh. We do a lot of sound effects on the show. Oh, I didn't know that. Not to brag. Oh, you're like the Michael Winslow of podcasts. I have heard that, and uh, thank you. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, Michael Winslow uh, had a—he was actually a great stand-up. Well, I don't know if he's a great stand-up, but he did. Lots I've never of sound seen a stand-up, but he is infamous for the Police Academy movies. He is basically the Foley department mm-hmm. <laughs> of the Police Academy movies. Anytime there was any sound effect, he would do it like bullet. <laughs> like it's insane. It's insane. No, they, no one ever really talks about like. There's a scene where like, there's two people eating. I think in the Police Academy cafeteria. And he's making the sounds as if they're eating. So they're like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, anyone that has ears, I mean, you know that that's not coming from the person in front of you. Right. I mean, I think, I don't know. You'd have to have, what am I going with this? Well, you know, but isn't, don't you always know people that do these quirky habits that you're, you wish you could tell them like, Hey, 
what's up, man? <laughs> but you're like, I don't want to hurt their feelings. So I'm just going to let them be weird. Like, that's who they are. You know what I mean? That's what they do. It's okay. You're right. And Michael Winslow is just accentuating their, their quirks. Exactly. I okay. I mean, he's not hurting anybody. In fact, he's just doing it for the pleasure of everybody else that might be near him or for himself. And that's okay. And that's art, I guess. You know, you, you do what makes your soul happy. For him, it's making funny noises from exactly. his mouth. And that's what art is. Michael Winslow is an artist. He is the he is the Andy Warhol of eighties police academy movies. Of sound effects in eighties <laughs> police academy movies. I didn't see this uh, being the subject of the first couple minutes of our conversation, mm -hmm. but I love it. Hi, Christella. Hi. Hi, Welcome. Jamie. Well, this has been a long time coming. I'm excited to have yes. you on the show. Oh, thank you. Truly. Thank you. I, I, I'm, I'm excited to be here. I, I like what we did. Uh, we've done one other previous podcast together. We mm -hmm. had a lot of fun. Yeah, and long shot. here it is. Here it is. This is my solo project. Yes, I, I know. This mm -hmm. is the John Lennon. Yep. This is the Imagine. Yeah, I'm, I'm compared to Michael Winslow <laughs> and John Lennon. I go everywhere. Just give me a department and I'll tell you who you are. Retail clothing, <clears throat> you're like the Tommy Bahama. <laughs> oh, I don't know how I feel about that one. <laughs> hey, it's an empire. Yeah, right. It's an empire. And that is what I'm trying to build. Yeah. So speaking of empires, yeah. you're building one. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to, I, I guess. Know. I don't know. And I'm you just, are. you know, I'm, I'm just working. I'm working. Well, I've known you for, since I've been at this club yes. and I started here in 2011, mm -hmm. I've known you from that point. And so you started doing standup in 2008. Is that what you just thought? No, 2002. Oh, 2002. Yep. That's what I wrote down as well. Yeah. <laughs> But you you started in comedy before you were a stand-up. Yes, I started working. I, I'm from Texas. I started stand-up in Texas. And I, before stand-up, before I knew I wanted to do stand-up, I worked at the Addison Improv for uh, for a couple years. How I, did you start there? You know, it, it's funny. I actually, um, I had moved back to Texas. I moved back to Texas to take care of my mom. Uh, my mom passed away and I was kind of stuck in Texas. And I didn't know what to do. I had been living in L.A., mm -hmm. Then I had to go back to take care of family stuff. And I was just stuck. And my family didn't really think that I was going to move anywhere else. You know, they thought I was just back home permanently. And after my mom passed away, I needed a job. And I didn't know what to do. The only thing, the longest job I had had at that point was serving. So I went to a restaurant. Um, I went to a restaurant chain called Johnny Carino's Italian. And I applied for a server job. They were opening up a new location in Dallas and they liked my resume and they were going to call me in the next day for an interview. And randomly, I looked up, this is 2002. It was the newspaper. Like I had a physical copy of the newspaper. There was this very vague job posting. I don't even know what made me respond to this ad. Didn't say it was a comedy club, nothing. It just said wanted um, office help. Light phones, light filing, blah, blah. And I thought, well, I can do anything light. I'm kind of lazy. Like, <laughs> sure. yeah, I can do that. I mean, if you want heavy, maybe not me, but light, totally. Heavy phones. <laughs> so um, I went and I found the building and it was the Addison Improv. And I had loved stand-up as a kid. I didn't know it was a job, though. Right. You know, like, it's such a weird thing. Like, nobody tells you it's a job. I have the same thing. When I, I was, I started doing comedy when I was 25. Uh -huh. I was like, oh, wait, this can be a thing you can do for a yeah. living. I, I used to see specials as a kid and it never occurred to me that they were getting paid for it. 
You know, like I didn't, I just kind of thought that's what they did for fun, you know, because for me, a job is, you know, I come from a, like an immigrant family. And for me, a job is uh, like physical labor, like hard manual labor, you know, so it seemed like fun. And um, I, I applied and I lied and I said that I had all this experience and that later became a joke I do. I, I used to do about lying on a resume. I lied on a resume and used my sister as my fake boss because mm-hmm. she had a different last name than me. And I lied and said that I was her assistant at her job. And they called and asked her for references. She gave them glowing references and, and I got the job. And it's funny, part of my job was to work in the office and do the calendar, the event calendar, you know, mm-hmm. like all the upcoming acts coming up. And I had lied and said that I, I knew Photoshop. Didn't even know what Photoshop was, mm-hmm. nothing. So when I got the job, I went to Staples and I bought this cheap printing software program and forced myself to learn how to use it over the weekend. And... um I did it. And I kind of like faked my way into this job. And that's why the logo at the Addison Improv is still a clip art. <laughs> that uh, was actually, that was there before me. That was it. Oh, is it? Yeah, that was I there was before me. It, it was, it's funny. Uh, the, um, the owner of the club back then, um, Mark Anderson, he loved that clip art. And he was it like let the, you... the masks that were smiling and frowning? It, no, it was kind of like a, like <laughs> pop art, like the guy and girl kind of like staring at each other, kind of like hilarious. comic book art. And we knew it was so outdated and he refused to let us change it. And you're just like, man, it's, it's kind of like, it's kind of like you, like if you had a job where you had to make uh like Sadie Hawkins dances cool again, like, you <laughs> know what I mean? Like there's just something, it's something really hard about that. Um, so my job was to answer phones. That was basically my main thing. First comic I had to answer phones for was Mitch Hedberg, who I had just seen on Comedy Central. And apparently he was really popular, which I didn't know. So they went to, you know, they took him to radio and I'm there in the office and I don't know how to answer phones or really I'm not familiar with the ticketing system. The phones light up. There's there's 12 lines. All of them lit up because he was so popular. I'm trying to answer the phones. I get slammed. Like I get slammed. And I'm just wondering, like, like, what is this? Like comedy clubs, this is how it works. Like this is people come in and they laugh. Like it's so, you know. Had you ever been to a comedy club before that? I had. I had actually I saw Dave Chappelle in St. Louis. I want to say in 1997, 98. He had just he was known for half-baked back then right. you know and and but even then it was it's weird when you're when it's your first time going to a club you don't know what to expect you don't know anything i knew the mc back then so that's how i saw Chappelle. but um i answered the phones i sold tickets and over the course of time like any office job they tell you originally what your job is supposed to be and then it evolves into this huge thing so then i during the back back in those days what year is this this is 2002. This oh, is and a, so you started comedy the same year. Actually, no, 2001, I think. Okay. You know, so um, I th- I'm so confused on the uh, on the year. But yeah, it was like either 2001, 2002. And um, this is a time where everyone, every weekend was busy. It was Mitch Hedberg, Kathleen Madigan, Jim Gaffigan, Brian Regan. Like they were all, no one did theaters. So it was the boom, right, right. you know, and every week was just me 
constantly answering phones and getting very tired and stuff. And um, I would do these calendars and the calendars started working. Like my boss started realizing that these calendars I was doing were kind of cool and getting people in. And then my job was to market the club now. Now, now I'm a sure. marketer for the club. I didn't even, I don't know what marketing is, but now I'm in charge mm-hmm. of marketing this thing. Right. So I, I started doing, um, I started doing things that would entertain the, the crowds coming into the club and prepare them for the next week. So I started doing these fake interviews with comics that were coming in and I kind of used their credits and stuff, but I had them, I had them, uh, I basically made up answers for them and the audience liked them when they were waiting in line. I would have, I would blow up a poster and they would see it and they would buy tickets for the next comic. It was just me being silly. What were they, what were they saying? It was, it was a a picture. Yeah, it was a poster. It was like a a picture that I blew up into a poster and I would put it up on the hallway outside of like the next person coming up and they would just wait in line and read the poster and Sometimes they thought that the comics really said that, so they would buy tickets. Do you remember to- any of the quotes you made up? Oh, like, um, like Kathleen Madigan, I, I made up that she was actually a Latina comic that wanted to break the rules. So I said that her real name was Catalina, and she just didn't like talking <laughs> about being Latina. You know, like, and she saw it and she thought it was hilarious. And we actually we became friends because of that. And she was actually one of the first ones that said uh, that asked me if I had ever considered doing stand up. I was like, no, you know, and I was like, of course not. Like, that seems so hard. Like, no, who am I to do it? And um, I want to say Wanda Sykes came in and Wanda back then. Oh, my God, I can't remember. I'm blanking on her feature, but her feature back then said, you know, I remember her feature back then said, you are going to do stand up. I can see it. Like you're going to do stand up, And even back then I'm like, you're out of your mind. Like, <laughs> shut up. Like, no, not at all. Da, da, da. And, um, I can't remember who it was, but there was one week that we had a comic that didn't do well. And he was kind of known for like a TV show. I don't even remember what it was, but he didn't really do stand up. but he filled the room, you know? And, you know, um, it was a pretty rough week. Mm-hmm. And then I remember, I remember cutting the check and thinking, are you serious? Like all this money? I'm like, you know what? I can be as funny as this guy. And I told myself, I'm like, you know what? I, I'm going to try to do it. The reason I wanted to, I got the job at the comedy club. I loved stand up so much. I wanted to be around it all the time. I never wanted to be in it because I thought it just seemed ridiculous, especially because back then I didn't know any Latino comics mm-hmm. except maybe Paul Rodriguez and Freddie Prince. And, you know, they were older dudes. They were guys, you know? So I decided to take a workshop. They had a workshop at the Addison Improv taught by uh, a local comic, Dean Lewis, who I love to death. And um, at the end of the workshop, you got to perform at the Addison Improv as part of graduation. And I did. And uh, I taped it back then on VHS and I had to, I, um, that's the set that I was telling you earlier. I I have the set on YouTube. This is the set, my graduation from my standup workshop. Mm -hmm. I have it on YouTube. It's set on private and my standup anniversary is labor day. And every day on labor day, I make it public so that people can see my very first time. It's my graduation set from this class. And, um, after I started doing standup, because my first set was at the improv, I thought, oh man, 
I'm going to go up at the improv all the time. Not realizing that a lot of times the home clubs don't like the local. Co- like it's really hard to get into your home club mm-hmm. when you're a local comic. Cause everybody's fighting for that spot. So, um, I know ne- it was very hard for the people at the club to, to see me as a comic. Cause I'm the chick from the office. I'm right. the girl from the office. So I had to start doing a lot of bars a lot of restaurants. What was the scene in Addison at the time? Well, you know, um, a lot of the comics that were there, uh, it was fairly new. We had had waves before, like Ron White, you know, was, uh, you know, Rodney Carrington. It was like kind of like a little boom. Mm-hmm. And then it died down for a while. And then I think that around the time I started doing it, there was a, a, sur- a resurgence of the standup. But we had to kind of come up with our own spots to go up at. So like there's an open mic that I used to go to every Monday at this bar in Arlington called Bell Bottoms and Bell Bottoms, like the best way it's kind of like roadhouse from Patrick Swayze. And it was Monday night. So they would show Monday night football and the screen was right next to the stage. So you had to do your like crappy jokes that you don't know how to write next to like, are you ready for some football? And no one wanted to pay attention to you. You had to be, you had to really win them over and it was so painful, but it was Monday nights, open mic. It was, an, it was a mic. And every week we would go. Like there was basically, I think, a core of about maybe 15 of us that would just kind of travel around and do it. And uh, it was hard. I mean, there were times where I would drive down to San Antonio to do the open mics, which is what maybe a five hour drive from Dallas. Mm. I, you know, I'd drive down to Austin to do Cap City you know, every now and then to do the open mics because I wanted the stage time and there just wasn't any. And um, there was a, a comic, Jesse Pangelinen, who had a Latino night at the at the club in Addison. And he started giving me spots, but he's the one that told me, like, you should go out and venture into different cities. And he said, uh, just remember this. When you're on the road, you can always go to sleep at a Walmart. They won't bother you at a Walmart parking lot. In the parking lot. In the parking lot. So um, when I started doing the open mics, I would, if I was tired, I would pull over and sleep at the Walmart parking lot for a couple hours and then drive up to Dallas to, to go to work the next day to Were answer Were there other phone. comics like in different cars? In the no, park? I was the only one that, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I was the only one that was doing that. Because for me, I, I was, uh, back then I was one of maybe five, four uh, women that were trying to do it. And um, it was hard. It was very hard. And I, I you know, um, I was the only one that I knew that was driving everywhere because I just wanted the stage time so bad. Do you ever have any sense that sleeping overnight in a Walmart parking lot adds tremendous street cred to your lore? <laughs> like, what a great thing. Everyone wants that story. I loved it so much. I slept in my car. Like, that's fucking cool. You know what's funny is that I guess, no, because when you say... When you do something, I know for me, when I do something, I think everybody does it. You know, like I loved it so much that I thought everybody does this. Everybody sleeps at a Walmart parking lot. Everybody drives hours for like a five minute set. And, you know, everybody does this, right? Everybody, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, which is funny because the first time I, I lived in L.A. twice, the first time I tried to come out here before I moved back to Texas, I lived in my car, Mm -hmm. you know, and I just really wanted I didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, Back then I was really into theater, but I was Latina and somebody had told me, you know, as a Latina, you couldn't do any theater. You could do West Side Story. You could do Chorus Line. 
you know, you could do maybe rent, but after that you were kind of done, you know? So I wanted to find something where I could write my own material and do it. I didn't know that that was stand up back then. Mm -hmm. So I was living in my car here in LA and, you know, so going back home and working at the club, I moved back home to take care of my mom, by the way, guys, um, you know, I left reluctantly, but when I was in Texas and started doing stand up, sleeping in Walmart parking lots was kind of the norm for me. I just kind of figured like, this is what everybody does, you know? That's amazing. I think it's just, especially for the comedians that listen to this podcast or the young comics, like remembering that that's the passion you you, you have. You to gotta have. have it. I mean, you, you, you know, people always ask me, they, people will ask me, well, how do you get into stand up? What should I do as a comic? Blah, blah. And, and I always say the same thing. Um, this career has no expiration date. So if you're willing to stick it out and know that it might not, that it might take 20 years, Mm -hmm. if ever, for it to happen, if you still want to do it, then go ahead and do it. But you are not going to go into this job hoping that you're going to be the next Vine star, Periscope, uh, Snapchat person. You can't do that because you you have no control over it. The people that become famous for that, they don't, they didn't plan on doing that. Like, that's what they do. You know, that's their thing. You want to do stand up? You got to be willing to go up at the open mics, you got to eat shit and you got to know that you're going to not be good before you're good. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how to swim. I like Michael Phelps. I never learned how to swim. I can't just go into a pool and pretend I'm going to be Michael Phelps. Mm-hmm. I got to learn how to swim. Yeah. I, I'm actually lucky like that where I'm just naturally aquatic. <laughs> so I don't relate with half that fish, so much. Half fish, half fish. Well, was, I mean, I hear it from, you know, from comics all the time, like, Ugh, I want to do stand up so much, but I, I can't sit through some of these open mics. And when you compare that to the sacrifices you made early on, like, mm-hmm. yeah, open mics can be rough. Yeah. But sitting through one for two or th- even three hours is nothing compared to if that's if that's what's holding you back, then you, I don't think you have the passion that you, it requires. You know, it, I was actually just talking about this. There's this old Hollywood story that I'm going to butcher, but the idea is the same. This young actress asks this famous actress for advice. She's like, I don't know what to do. I, I don't know what to do with my life. I can either be a teacher or be an actor. And the famous actress says, oh, be a teacher. Because acting is what you do when you have no other choice. If that's the only choice you have in life, mm-hmm. then that's, that's when you become an actor. You, if you have another choice, go do that. Go be happy because this is tough and this can suck. And that's how I think about stand-up. It's like, well, are you willing to, to do that? I, I did the college market for years mm-hmm. I and I was very busy. I did, I think like 130 colleges in one year, one school year, August, you know, to May. That was not glamorous at all. I did colleges for, I want to say two, three years. And it was just me practically at a different school every day by myself driving college gigs. I would start and I'm being real here. Like I would start at a thousand dollars. They would pay me a thousand dollars for the night. And you're thinking as a comic, A thousand bucks. Oh my God. What they don't tell you though, is that you have to get yourself there. You have to fly. You have to buy your own plane ticket. When you start out, a lot of times they'll send you to the middle of nowhere where you have to spend seven, $800 to get there because they're small towns that, that know that if you're going to fly there, you have to like, you're going to pay whatever you want Mm -hmm. because you need to fly in there. Right. So let's say, you know, like I did a, what was it? Uh, I want to say Billings, Montana. Uh, my whole check was basically getting there because it was just too expensive. So what I started doing, I started driving to major, I started flying to major cities and then driving to the small towns 
perfect example. I had a gig in Minot, North Dakota. To fly into Minot, North Dakota, it was $900 just because, just because, you know, like. That's my tiny airport. Yeah. You know, Minot, North Dakota was $900. So I decided to fly myself to Minneapolis, Minnesota, which was about a nine, 10 hour drive because it was cheap. I think I got the, it was like maybe 250 you know, round trip. So, but I had to rent a car. So I flew into my, as Minneapolis, drove a car nine hours, did the gig, drove back as much as I could, got a motel six, slept for a no, couple hours. No, Walmarts and no, like there was, it was all I'm dead. Like, you know, I know, like, well, cause you don't know the roads. I would have looked for a Walmart, but it's like, um, I stopped at a motel six, slept for a couple hours, Went back to Minneapolis because I had to make my flight to go back home. I didn't sleep. And throughout that area, there's no reception. So you're kind of just killing time by yourself. You're in a car by yourself wondering, what the fuck am I doing here? Is this what I want to do with my life? Like, there are times I'd start crying in the car because I'm just like, why am I doing this? Like, why the hell am I doing this? I am so alone, you know? And there are moments where I'm like, I do it because I can't do anything else. Yeah. I do it because I, I, I love to do it. Well, and now 10 years later, however long it is, like what, um, do you know even more so why you did it? I did it. You know, honestly, I did it because it was something I always wanted to do. And I always told myself from the day I started doing stand up, I said I would continue doing it until it wasn't fun anymore. And, you know, I come from a family where we are all about survival, you know, um, I was like my family, we were squatters for the first seven years of my life. We were pretty much homeless. And I know that people in my family, they have terrible jobs that they do because they have to do it. Mm-hmm. So for me to get this chance to do stand up, trust me, I would rather sit through the open mics and wait for me to get called three hours in than go out into a field and pick and pick vegetables like some of the people in my family. That's a fucking luxury, you know? So when I hear people complain about how hard it is, I'm like, yeah, you don't fucking know how hard it can be. You know, the other options are terrible at times, you know, depending on where you come from. So for me, every time I felt, every time I doubted myself, every time I felt shitty, I told myself, you do it because you're fucking lucky to do it. You're doing something you like to do. And that, that's great. Not everybody can do that. So you have to shut up, take it in. And you have to know that it's going to pay off if you fucking put the work in. Oh, inspiring. <laughs> Inspired. <laughs> I thought this was going to be like the end of the conversation. But we're still just getting started. I, I literally dropped a mic in here. I'm I just like, I'm ruining this room. <laughs> so let's backtrack a little yeah. bit. You start doing stand-up. You're yeah. starting to do these shows around town. Mm-hmm. What does that next phase look like as far as, you know, you know, getting better in Addison and then getting back to L.A.? and you know, what's, what's funny is um, in Dallas, there is a comedy club that I still go to every time I'm in town. It's called the Backdoor Comedy Club. It's uh, run by two women, Jan and Linda. And uh, Jan and Linda, they have, this is their baby. And throughout the years, they have had this comedy club at different locations all around Dallas. And um, this is the place where a lot of comics go and, and they work out stuff and and it's like the regular place. It's like the showcase club of the week. Here's the thing, though. You have to be clean. Mm. You have to be clean. And I got to tell you, that was one of the, like, when I was in Dallas, 
I worked extremely clean. And I was actually taught by people that being clean, having the ability to be clean, you can cuss and you, you can say whatever the fuck you want because if that's you. But in order to get on TV, you have to be clean usually. Mm-hmm. You know, so I would do these, I would do these sets at the club. I'd be clean. And then I started realizing that um, when I moved out here to LA, I just told myself, I got to go out there. If I fail, I fail. My brother said it best. My brother, my brother said, go, you know, people are always afraid of leaving their home. You got to know, like, we don't lock up the city when you leave. You can always come back. So just fucking go. Mm -hmm. And I left and I thought, I'm going to try it. Now that, and I know it sounds weird, but um, my mom, I always had to move back home to take care of my mom. So now that my mom had passed away, it was sad, but at the same time, I was very liberated. Mm-hmm. I felt like now I can give it my my all and try to go for it. And I moved to LA and- What year did you move to LA? Huh? What year? I moved here 2005. So you've been doing stand-up for three years. Uh-huh. And you moved to LA. Uh-huh. And you know, you see people move here all the time. Yeah. Did, did you feel that you were ready? Um, or do you wish you could have been like the big fish in the small pond? No, no. actually, you know, I, I think the big fish, the small pond, it, it, when you get to that point, it's harder for you to move because why, why move? You're, you're doing great at home. You know, for me, I was at the point where I could do, honestly, I thought I could do like 10, 12 minutes solid back then. To me, 10, 12 was pretty much the usual spots. So I thought if I can get in at a club, I can do that spot. You know, I can do enough to fill the spot, but I knew I could learn more here in Los Angeles. So it was that thing where I thought I was a little solid, but I had a lot to learn, which I thought for me was the perfect time to go to LA. Cause for me, it's like, if you're too established again, big fish, you don't want to leave because then you have to start over again. People don't realize this when you move to Los Angeles or you move to New York or you, you have to start over again. No one gives a shit who you were back in wherever you were. No one, you know, and you have to be willing to have to start over again and go through it again if you have to. When I moved to L.A., um, no one booked me at all. You know, um, I started doing I, one booker for a club, which shall remain nameless, basically said, um, Basically said, well, you know, you're Latino, so I would suggest you go out and start doing the bars and restaurants where the other Latino <laughs> comics hang out. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like, wh- what do you, because it's weird. In Dallas, I wasn't a Latino comic. In it's Dallas, comic. I was just a, a comic. Yeah. It wasn't until I moved to LA that I was labeled a Latina comic. Not only was I Latino, I was a woman. Had no idea that it was a different game. So I started doing all of these bar gigs wherever I could. And, um, a lot of times when I did Latino rooms, there were certain mark, certain rooms where I would eat it, eat it bad because I wasn't doing the normal jokes that everybody else was doing. I remember there was this one show, maybe five or six comics on the lineup and each comic, I want to say three in a row, had the same joke about a cousin being 16 and she was pregnant in her quinceañera. Okay. First time you hear it, if I hear that joke and I know I have something similar, I'm going to be like, I'm not going to do that joke tonight because I just heard it. Right. Three comics in a row went up and did that, you know, and the audience loved it. Like the audience was like, ah, you know, like (laughs) it's so weird. It's like, hey, in case you missed it the first time, here's the sequel, you know, and um, 
I would go up there and I would talk about things that I thought were very personal to me and therefore Latino because I'm Latino. And a lot of times they're like, boo, like they're like, they didn't get it. Like, you know, and um, I, I never thought about changing what I did because I only knew what to talk about, you know, regard regarding my life. I can't make up anything about my life. So I kind of figured, okay, this is, these are my open mics. This is where I'm building my set and I'm going to stick to it and know that one day you'll slowly find people that get you, but you got to hang in there. And it was a lot of that. And there was a, a guy who um, ran a Latino night and uh, he bumped me three times from his show. And it was like the biggest, like, like the most obviously blatantly like disrespectful thing. I'm like, wow, well, you, you would never do that to most people. First time he booked, uh, he bumped me. Uh, I think somebody dropped in, whatever show ran long. I get it. That's part of standup. Mm-hmm. Part of standup is that sometimes you're at a club and someone very, a lot more famous than you drops by. And sometimes if it runs late, you don't get to go up. That's cool. I got it. Second time I get bumped from this guy's show because um, nobody from the show told the audience, but there was a comic taping his special at this Latino show. And I was like, oh, why am I booked then? Like, I don't even understand why I'm booked. Third time I got, and even then I'm like, you know what? Shit happens. You got to go with it, right? Third time the club books me for, you know, like spots at the club. And they booked me on the Latino show. Now it's a two show night and I do the first set and I hang out at the bar and then I see the bookers of the Latino show running around. They see me, I see them and uh, the show's about to start. So I go in to check in and the booker says, oh yeah, we bumped you cause we, cause you didn't check in. And I said, but, well, you saw me though. Like I, I was there at the bar. Like I'm right there, right by the front door. Like, ah, yeah, but you didn't check in. So Ah, I guess you don't rules have a spot be tonight. Rules, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm assuming that was here. Huh? Was that here? Yeah, that was here. <laughs> In the last five years? Yeah. <laughs> was I around? No, you weren't around. This is be- actually, this is before you. Okay, this cool. is before you. Because that's under my watch. <laughs> no, Suri. Oh, and I got really upset. And at this point I thought, you know, um, this is bullshit. And now that this is a lesson that I learned at that moment. In stand-up, you have to deal with a lot of stuff that you don't want to deal with. The drop-ins, the bumps, whatever. Like, that's all part of the job. When someone's shitty to you personally, that's when I get offended. Because I can take a lot of it. I know how the business is. But when you're just being a dick to me personally, oh my God, like, I'm done. I'm done. And after that... I refused to ever do that show, which was the only way I could get on this club back then. I could only get on the, uh, in this club, I could only do shows at that show. Like the fact that that night I was booked on the earlier show, I was so excited mm-hmm. that I was booked on a non-Latino show, you know, and that Latino show ruined it for me. And I told myself I would rather not do spots than have to deal with that bullshit. Yeah. You know, and I went off and I started doing my own spots, like wherever I could find them. Well, by the time I got here, you were, I mean, beloved to, you know, the bookers and Aaron, my boss. Well, you know, Aaron, Aaron Pooler, um, we used to talk when I, before I started doing standup, 
I, when I was working at the Addison Improv, yeah. she would call me and we would, we would get, I would give her ticket counts. I'd help with contracts and stuff. So when I became a comic and we bumped into each other, it was like, Hey, you're Aaron from LA. And she's like, you're Christella from Addison. So, but even then think about it this way, we bumped into each other. I still had to prove myself. I couldn't just get spots because she knew who I was. I mean, I had to go around and build the set. I mean, even then, everybody thinks that if you know someone, it's going to be easier. Sometimes you're easier to be remembered, but that doesn't mean you're going to get spots. You buddying up to people. That's a lesson I learned in Addison at the Addison Improv. There was a manager there and comics used to every now and then hang around at the club and they would try to get seen. I've never hung out at clubs. I, I only go to clubs if I'm working because I, I, to me, the hangout thing, this is what I learned from Madison. The manager one time, I don't remember who it was. Somebody had sold out. It was like a really big comic. The manager said, you know what bugs me about these local comics? When they come here, I know they're not going up anywhere else. I was just going to say that. You know, where are you getting better at? You know, and that always stuck with me because I had just started doing stand up. And I thought, yeah, every time you see people hanging out, if, and I get it every now and then, of course, come hang out. But if you're there on a regular basis, they see that and they say, where are you going up? When are you, when are you working on, on stand up? When are you doing it? And because of that, I refuse to hang out in clubs because for me, I go to clubs to work out after my set's done. If there's people that I like around, I'll hang out. But I don't go to the club just to hang out. Like for me, that you, if you work at an office, you're not going to go to the office on your day off just to see what everybody else is doing. I mean, you're at home, you know? Well, I, I love, I mean, for this club and the Hollywood Improv, just by nature of it being around forever and being what it is, is more of a hangout than a lot of other clubs. But I definitely pay attention to that. You know, I, I, there are people that hang out and I love when people are like, I just did two spots or I was in the neighborhood and that's much different than I absolutely you're here four or five nights a week. It's like, that's yeah. Where are you going up? (laughs) Because for a professional club, the booker wants people that are fresh and professional comics that keep working at it. Yeah. I mean, see, like for me, I'm on the road a lot. So every now and then I don't do this club very often. I'm never home. When I'm home, I try to do it, but you know, I, I rarely do it. I can tell you though, um, if I haven't been here in a while, when I come here, I will do a set and I will camp out for the night because you're around and we hang out or Eddie is at the bar and I love Eddie to death and I will hang out with Eddie just because familiar faces, it's nice to check in and hang out, Mm -hmm. but I can't do it every day. I mean, I got to write. (laughs) I got to, I got to go do the work somewhere else. People don't get that. No. And especially young comics. It's like, uh, you need to be out every single night and that's the only way you get to be as good as you are. Yeah. Well, you know, and here's the thing too, is that, you know, I am just now learning, uh, learning how to have fun because I am the person that I like to work a lot. And I finally realized that, um, I'm at the point now where I realized um, I need to do the work right, but I also need to have fun so that I have things to talk about. And that's a really hard thing to gauge because a lot of comics, they hang out and, you know, especially if you're new, you get ideas and you get excited and you want to write about it. But a lot of times that writing happens when you hang out with other comics because you're kind of like just talking, you're bullshitting. That's good. 
but you got to kind of like bring it in and kind of say, Hey, I've been doing this for a bit, like enough for the week. Like I should go out and should go home and kind of write these ideas out or else they just become memories. And then years from now, you're like, Hey, remember that thing? Oh yeah. Yeah. I totally forgot. You know, there is a, um, there is a thing about hanging out. Like you said, like this club, especially you can hang out this setup for hanging out, but also maybe go do some work sometimes. Yeah, sure. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it's just balance and it's tough. It Even is. as a booker, you know, I, in the last few months since the lab opened. Yeah. I basically been living here. So many shows. So many shows, but also it's, you know, I have to remind myself that, you know, I need to spend a day or two away and just, you know, just to re-energize, but also just remember that there's another world out there. And, you know, yeah. it's no different than any creative job. You know, you want to bring your life experience and, you know, I haven't even been to... You know, I used to go to different uh, clubs and different shows around town all the time. Yeah. But you need to know what's happening in the world. Yeah. Uh, you have to be, you know, it's funny. And also, this is something that I learned when I was starting out in L.A. Um, I wanted to try. I was trying to get into every club. And that's exhausting because there's a lot of clubs out there. Yeah. And then you realize for me, I realized that certain clubs weren't my thing. I mean, and, and, and that's fine. You need to go out and you need to kind of gauge the clubs and see where you feel comfortable in because you don't feel comfortable in all of them. And once you pick the comic, not pick, I mean, that's actually the wrong word. But once you realize that you feel at home in some clubs, those become your clubs. And that's that's okay. You don't have to go out to all the other clubs. You know, I mean, the clubs I go to in L.A. right now, my home club is Hermosa Beach because they're the first ones to headline me ever like, like you know in LA so for me I'm super loyal to that club here I come here as much as I can but it's always so hard sometimes though because there's so many shows that you're just like well I can fit you in here I can fit you in it's inconsistent because everybody this is a Hollywood club everybody wants the Hollywood club so you realize there are fewer spots to give out because you're competing against you're competing against so many people people don't understand if you're if you're a new comic and you're sending a veils into like a, a Hollywood improv, you are competing with like a Dane Cook. And that's what people don't understand. Like you're competing against different kind of comics that have been on TV and stuff. So, hey, you're not going to get up on stage every You're competing you know. against Cristela Alonso. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> but it, it's true. It's like, I mean, there's very few clubs that I go to because I know I can get the work done there, you know? And that's okay. I mean, there's a lot of clubs out there and it's okay that you don't go to all of them. You just, I think you have to pick which ones you feel at home and that's your home club. I love it. Well, I mean, this is so much on standup and I want to yeah. now fast forward. Yeah. So you're doing the colleges and mm -hmm. you're driving around and then what's the next big gate that you kind of approach in um, your career? Well, uh, I'll be honest, the college market, I... It was 2011, I think. I did NACA Nationals. And I had been chosen to do NACA Nationals. And I wasn't going to go. NACA Nationals. Oh, you're, you're yeah. Right. Yeah. NACA Nationals. Uh, NACA is the organization for colleges. That's where uh, comics, uh, comics, face painters, jugglers, we all go to compete to get a spot, like uh, to get a spot at a college. That's kind of sucked. It's one thing to get bumped by... Uh, uh, David uh -huh. Spade popping in, uh -huh. but by a face painter, by a face painter. Like I, uh, you see people you, like you see students walking around with, with like puppy faces 
and I'm here with my notebook, like, what's funnier, <laughs> bird or parrot? Like, you know, like you're just like it's such a. It, it is kind of weird. You're just like, oh come on, man! Like this is bullshit. Um, I couldn't afford it. I couldn't afford to go to national to nationals because every year they pick a different city to host. That year it was in Charlotte, North Carolina, and uh, my agent at the time. Um, was trying to get me to go, and I told him I'm broke. College, I was, I've been doing so many colleges. I'm broke from doing so many colleges. That's how expensive and hard it is to make a living as a college comic. I'm broke, and I'm busy all the time. So, um, my agent said, I, I owed him. I, I, I owed my agency commissions. I couldn't even. I didn't even have enough money to pay my agency commissions. My agent said, you know what? I'll let the commissions like I hold off on the commissions. You should go to NACA nationals. And I'm like, okay, okay. This phone call that we're having, I am on my way back home to Texas because I'm visiting and I think I'm moving back there. Cause I don't, I don't think I'm going to make it as a stand up comic. This is what's happening. I am like in Arizona on my way to Texas thinking like, fuck LA. I'm done. I'm tapping out. And my agent said, you should go to the, national convention. And I said, okay, fine, fine. Uh, I'll do it. Fine. And I cashed in on my miles, all my points, everything. The trip was free. You know, um, it's like the, the free flight where you have like four layovers and stuff and everything. Went to Charlotte, North Carolina. I was emceeing. When you emcee a NACA showcase, you get 25 minutes spread apart the whole showcase. And I had calculated that um, I needed nine schools. I needed to book nine schools to survive for the year. Like if spending no money, nine schools at the rate I was at, I could do it. And, uh, do they, and they book you right there. They book you. Yeah. You showcase. And then after the, after you showcase, you go to the marketplace and it's basically like an auction. You, they, you have an hour and the, the students, they will give you a form saying that they're interested in you and your agent kind of fills out everything after that. And then the next day in the morning, you have like another auction where they bring up your name. It's a room full of students. Whoever wants, wants you raises a paddle. And then they like, wow. a, they a, accumulate like the, the, the gigs, the number of gigs. So I showcased and I don't know what it was, but that showcase, the stars aligned and I had a really good showcase and the students like I had such a great reaction from, from the students. The people at NACA were like, that's one of the best showcases we've ever had just from the other performers too. It was just like, how does a face painter? They don't do it. They, they <laughs> showcase. don't showcase like, 10 minutes. Like, what do you want? Like, wow. I'll make a unicorn. Hey, everybody. It's like Bob Vila, like a little <laughs> happy horn right here. Um, so after the showcase, I, uh, I went to the marketplace and it's basically like a bell like a school bell goes off and the kids kind of like attack everything. The students attack everything. And um, I was at the marketplace thinking I, I want nine schools and the marketplace started and all of these kids, like all these students started lining up. And I, I had been screwed over NACA nationals years before I went to NACA nationals and Snooki was there and everybody lined up to meet Snooki who was charging like 20 grand so that she could go to your school and you could interview her. It was oh such God. a slap in the face. And I saw this line again and I thought, oh, who the hell is here? Like, who is the new Snooki? And it turns out they were there to see me. Like the students. Stella is the new Snooki. <laughs> <laughs> the students lined up and I had no idea what was happening because 
I had never experienced that at all. And my agent is like really busy. He's like kind of losing it because he's getting all these forms and I don't know what's happening. I have no idea what's happening. All I know is that the students wanted to say hi to me and I- You were blowing up. Well, I had no idea. And then my agent said, you know what? You need to stay. You should probably stay another day. I was like, I can't afford to stay another day. Like I, I can't even afford the chain to change my flight. He's like, you, you should stay another day. And I remember I, I, uh, I called my then boyfriend and I told him like, um, he wants me to stay another day. Like that's a, at least 150 bucks. And my boyfriend's like, well, if you got to do it, you got to do it. Right. I mean, he's telling you to, and I thought, okay. And that was it. Now I'm in the hole. Now I have to charge this. And now I'm in yeah. the hole, you know, next day. Um, so day ends because I showcased in the afternoon. Day's done. But that first day, so then this, there's this groundswell around you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The marketplace, like everybody's just saying hi. They all want me to autograph stuff for them. I'm no one. I'm I'm no one at this point. Like I'm no one. Like, they're they're all having you fill out forms so then they can submit to have you play at their school. Yes. Have right. no idea that that's happening. Like I understand it, but at the same time, I haven't been successful. <laughs> right. So I <laughs> don't understand what's going on. And uh, at the same time. So the next day, I um, I remember uh, uh, Chris Newberg. We bumped into each other. We were both broke, and we, that night uh, we went to a Waffle House, and we were talking about how this was like our last big thing, basically. The waffle House. Like, 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 like this waffle. This is the end of stand up. Like we were talking about how we were both really poor and we didn't have money and. Uh, we went to the Waffle House because I had offered to give him a ride at the airport to the airport. And we were kind of having a, a miserable yet fun dinner at the Waffle House. And um, I, I think I took him to the airport. I went to sleep. Next day, I went back to the convention. And everybody, the moment I get there, people start high-fiving me. And they start, <laughs> like, hugging me. And they, they, people want to take pictures. I have no idea what's going on. The, the auction part had just happened. Didn't know. People are congratulating me. I had no idea. And then um, my agent tells me, I'm uh, now imagine, remember, I'm shooting for nine. My agent tells me that 130 schools had booked me. Now I wanted nine. Couldn't understand it. Like, I remember he told me I was stunned. I, I thought he was lying. Like I was, I, th- I thought it was like a cruel joke. Cause I'm, cause I'm about to move back home to Texas mm-hmm. to, you know, get the real job, you know? And, um, he broke it down and said, no, 130 schools for the year. It's like one of the highest that they had gotten. And I didn't understand. I couldn't understand. And then finally I was there like speechless for a while. And he said, Christella, you don't have to worry about money now. These gigs, you're, you're, we just got 13 times the amount of income you would need to survive. Yeah. I, well, I got actually a, a 123 more than I thought, you know, it's insane. Yeah. It's insane. So the moment he broke it down, he said, you don't have to worry about money anymore. And the way he said it, I remember I started bawling. I started crying. I started crying like a baby. I, I called my boyfriend at the time and I I told him what had happened and he couldn't believe it. And he started crying because we were both moving, like thinking about moving back to Texas. Like 
I just couldn't, I, I didn't know what yeah. to do. Like, it was just like, it was just kind of like the, the miracle story, like the miracle on ice, hike, like hockey, you know? And, um, when I got home, I didn't realize what was going on. Now, mind you, I showcased in the spring. I had to survive till the fall to get my college right. money. So now I've got to find a way to live in LA. And, um, my agent said, well, you know, I've been talking to, uh, I've been talking to JP at Conan and uh, I'm going to try to get you to submit, you know, to Conan. And I thought, Conan, like I'm broke. Like, you know, I'm obviously in my mind, I'm thinking I'm not successful. Like <laughs> Conan's not going to want me. I'm not successful. You know, that's what I kept thinking. And uh, I want to say maybe, you know, I, at, at that moment I thought shit's really coming together. Like this is really exciting. The next day my agent gets fired from the agency and now I don't know what to do because now I don't know if I have an agent I don't know if I'm with the agency now so now I have no idea I had a manager then and uh he decided to to email all the agents he knew and said hey I have this client does anybody want to meet with this client within five minutes uh WME emailed me uh, emailed him and said we want to meet with her didn't know that I had booked all these colleges and stuff. Met with them. I hit it off with them. I ended up signing with them. They took over the Conan thing. And here's the thing, though. I had never submitted to late night. I had never submitted a set to anything. And I knew from doing the NACA showcases what my five minutes were. I knew what my five minute set was. So I taped my five minute set at Comedy and Magic. I sent it in and I just hoped for the best. I get a call and they say, uh, you got Conan. And I remember like I was in Indianapolis doing uh, crackers. Sure. I was by myself. I was in the hotel room kind of hoping, you know, not going out anywhere to not spend money. I get the call. I'm like, I'm doing Conan. And not only that, but I, this goes back to me learning how to work clean and stuff. JP had liked my set and wanted, it gave me no notes. He's like, this is, this is the set. Like, didn't, didn't follow me around. We didn't go up anywhere. Like, this was just the set. Like, I knew this set from having done it over and over again. And I did Conan. And um, I want to say I met with WME and they asked me, have you ever thought about doing a show? I was like, no, my God, no. Like, like just doing your own show. Like, like, yeah, doing a TV show. Have you ever thought of getting your own TV show? Like. No, that's the dumbest thing I've ever, like, I, I, I was just broke guys. Like, like I was just practically homeless again for the second time in my life. And, um, WME said, uh, there's a producer that we want you to meet. And we, you know, we sent her the Conan thing. I met with the producer. We hit it off. She loved the Conan set and she offered me a development deal based on the Conan set. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. Like, honestly, this is all within. A month or two. This is, yeah. 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 This is all like, I, I want to say what I showcased maybe in Vernaca in March. And I think April or May I was on Conan. Like, you know. So this is what year? This is 2011. 2011. 2011. So you've been doing it for nine years. Mm-hmm. Just do a little math here. Minus. <laughs> this is a remainder of. So nine years. Comics, if you're listening, it takes nine years, but you're guaranteed to have everything hit. <laughs> I know. At that Just moment. hold on. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, but nine I, years you get NACA nationals and you do well and yeah. Well, let's go back to I mean, it's like you, all these things, and you don't know why it's important that you're doing this um, club in Addison for these two ladies, and you're working clean, and how that's going to play into Conan, and how that's going to like it, it's all a domino and, effect, and everything you learn along the way, whether it's amazing or you know, the, you know, a nightmare. Yeah. It's going to play into the story that leads to where you're going. So now you do Conan and now you have a development deal. No, I have a development deal. And, uh, well, what does that look like? So then you, you meet with them for a TV show and like, you just pitch some ideas. I tell them, I didn't even know I was pitching them an idea. Cause again, I, I wasn't pursuing a show. So I basically told them jokes from my set about my family now, I started doing stand-up because I had lost my mom and I couldn't afford therapy. And I started talking about my family because that was the only way I knew how to talk to people and connect with people. I wasn't, I was never trying to do a show, a set to get a TV show. So I was meeting with the producer, Becky, and uh, she and I hit it off. She read my, she, I had read blog, you know, I had written some blogs. She read the blogs and, you know, from the development deal, uh, her production company was under 20th, 20th Century Fox. So now I have to go to the studio. She liked me enough. She's like, let's do this. We go to 20th and now I have to pitch to a studio. Now I'm telling them things about my mom and they're loving it and blah, blah. And um, then I book a, a half hour special. That happened in 2011 too. What a year. <laughs> it, it, I went from being completely broke to everything in succession. I tape the Comedy Central half hour in June of 2011. And uh, it airs, I don't even know when or whatever. How did you book that? Huh? And how did you book that? Well, actually, you know, um, my agent and manager at the time, I, I, again, here's the thing. I had submitted to Comedy Central many times before and never got it. Never. And I had given up on the half hour. I just thought, you know what? I'm not the person that's going to get the half hour. I submitted, submitted nothing. I'm like, it's done. It's not for me. It's same thing with like just for laughs, the festival. I auditioned for new faces six years in a row. I was no longer a new face, still auditioning for new face. Never got a callback, like never. And I realized uh, for, for me, I was just like, you know what? That's not my thing. I'm not going to do a half hour. I'm not going to do a JFL. These are all big staples for comics. So I'm thinking at that time, I'm thinking, I don't think I'm going to be a comic. I don't, I don't think it's going to pan out for me, you know? Um, so I get the half hour, uh, it airs and it's funny. I air, uh, that night with Lil Rel who ends up doing very well for himself too on Carmichael now. And, um, Becky, the producer gets a copy of my half hour and sends it to the president of ABC and tells him, watch this half hour. He watches the half hour and he loves it. He's like, I want this girl on my network and the half hour. And it's funny because I, I want to, I can't remember the website, but this standup blog, the standup website was doing an article about how late night sets don't matter anymore. Mm. And they were interviewing a bunch of comics. And I was like, the late night spots kind of like what, what started this whole thing for me. I mean, Conan, Conan started the domino effect. That's why I've done Conan three times. I'm very loyal to Conan. Because for me, J.P. Buck and, and Conan gave me the shot that no one else would uh, had given me. So I, I'm a like I, I I'm very loyal. So like that's for me, Conan 
without even knowing helped save me from not from quitting stand up. That's amazing. <laughs> so, um, uh, it, it was just domino like Conan led to the half hour, led to the president of ABC seeing my special. And, um, then I got, then I pitched to the network and they're like, you know, they gave me, they gave me, um, a, a penalty with, uh, the, th- with my deal. What happens now when I mean with a penalty with ABC, uh, they promised to make my pilot. If they didn't make it, um, this, you know, the studio got X amount of money, which I, I want to say, and I'm going to get into numbers. I'll say it. It was like 300,000, I think, or something. Who gets that money? The studio. If it doesn't get made. Yeah. I don't get any of that money. Like uh, the studio gets the money because they own the show. So then, um, my partner and I, my partner, Kevin and I, we, we write the script. We, we, we do the outline, blah, blah, blah. We write the script. It doesn't get pick, picked up to pilot. And I'm thinking, well, eh, you know, it happens. Um, I remember I'm flying to San Antonio to do the LOL club in San Antonio. Um, I land and I have a voicemail from Becky and Becky's like, call us immediately, blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, what the hell's going on? So I call and we start, she starts asking me like, Hey, would you want to shoot like a sizzle reel, like a pilot presentation for your pilot? Cause I think if the network saw what the script was live, I think they might change their mind. I think we could do something. I was like, yeah, I mean, I would, of course. I mean, yeah. why not? Let's do the Hail Mary. Sure. You know? And uh, she's like, let me work on that. She's and, like, I'm going to need you to do 130 colleges, <laughs> save up some money. And by the way, I'm working on the script while I'm doing the colleges. So I'm doing like voice calls, like meetings, everything. Like I'm developing the show while I'm in Minot, North Dakota. You know what right. I mean? Like, you know, so um, she starts working on it and it had never been done before in, in TV history. Um, we got the 300,000, whatever it was, you know, from the studio and we used it to shoot a pilot presentation Normally a pilot is about 1.2, 1.5 million. We shot it for 300,000. She produces Last Man Standing, which is a sitcom with Tim Allen on ABC. She, she got them to let us, uh, to lend us their set so that we didn't have to use a set. Mm. And um, she got her, uh, the crew of Last Man Standing to, um, to help out on our pilot. They wrapped the season you know, on a Wednesday or something. I don't even remember Tuesday that night, the crew stayed to change the set enough to where it looked like a different house. And the next day we shot the pilot. We did auditions like guerrilla style. Like by that, it's everybody had a lot of people had been cast that we had looked at. We ended up finding these amazing actors and we um, blocked the pilot episode in this like a uh, workshop that had no furniture. And we did it with duct tape and stuff. And we didn't get a chance to rehearse on the stage till the day we shot it. And we just did it. And, you know, it was just like, you know what? We're going to do it. And if it fails, it fails. Because they already said no to us anyway, right? That year, um, Henry Winkler had a pilot for ABC. Uh, um, uh, Oh, my God. Uh, Kevin Hart had one. And everybody, everybody, uh, from like the studio network side made it pretty abundantly clear that they were in contention 
or I was competing against these people, which right. I thought it's not a competition. Like it was all different. It's a different project, you know? And, um, they said, basically they're like, okay, go shoot your little thing. And we shot it. And I, uh, we shot the pilot episode. The show was about my family based on my family, my real family. And the cast that we had as my family all spoke Spanish. So after we finished the pilot episode, I said, Hey, do you want to do this scene in Spanish just to show the network in the studio that we can do it in Spanish too? And we did. And the audience lost their shit. Like the audience was like so excited that we shot it in Spanish. I just wanted to show that we could do it. And, uh, after that, um, they said, you know, originally they said, well, we don't have any money to, uh, to test this in front of an audience, but you could tell they were really excited with what they got. And, um, First of all, like, like at this point, Becky didn't even know if I could act. She just liked my stand up. Like she had no idea if I could act or not, but apparently I could. And uh, the day after we shot the pilot, I went to Canada to do a JFL tour because it turns out that I skipped over new faces and ended up getting booked on a show at JFL. And now JFL uses me all the time. So, you know, it was just. So you just eliminated that gatekeeper. I, I did. I just, I done. I bypassed that over, step. Yeah. yeah I, I bypassed it, you know? So I went to do this road show and, uh, then I find out the producer's telling me, Oh, um, Hey, they're going to test the pilot. They're going to test it and see what the audience thinks. And it scored really high. It was like one of the highest, you know, it was one of the highest they had had in like the last five years. And then, all of a sudden I was this underdog that nobody, like this little project was the underdog thing that no one thought would ever get greenlit. And then it turns out we got greenlit. Like we went from getting told no as a, not even a pilot to shooting our own pilot to getting picked up to the air. We're like Kevin Hart and Henry Winkler taunting you. <laughs> Good luck kid. I know. Henry Winkler's like, Hey, <laughs> like, no. and it was this thing where I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that it had happened and it was already such a weird thing. It had never been done again, you know, and, and, uh, we went into production show lasted a season. It got canceled. Um, it was this thing where we were Friday nights. I didn't understand the business part of TV. Cause again, I wasn't expecting to ever get this opportunity. Um, because my show wasn't owned by ABC, they had to basically rent it from 20th, which costs a lot of money. So therefore, um, they didn't promote it a lot once it, it got the first episode. I didn't know that, you know? So it's like you learn things for That's the so next crazy, time. That's crazy because, you know, from the outside looking in to this day, you're like you get on TV and when you hear people complaining about not getting that proper promotion, you're like, what does that mean even? Like it's on their TV network. Right. Well, I never got a billboard. I mean, not one billboard. I got bus benches, you know? And, and even then it's like, at one point, they're like, what about talking bus benches? Here's the, the idea. Christella, we're going to put you into a recording studio. You're going to say, oh, you're sitting on me. They oh. sit up and then it's you saying, hey, watch Christella Friday nights at 830. And we have prank show. I'm like, mm, how about a billboard? Yeah. <laughs> how about like, yeah. uh, not that, you know? And um, I, the show got canceled. I, you know. Well, let's do wait. Go Before ahead. you get to the show being canceled. I mean, for me personally, I yeah. happen to be working on my own project and was on the lot mm -hmm. when you were shooting. And yes. I texted you. I was like, yes, I'm here. Uh -huh. And one of the most surreal moments of my life, Christella, who I, you know, I've been yeah. for a few years at that point. And 
you know, being led in. There's a line out the door mm-hmm. of, you know, audience members waiting to get in and then going in and being on a real Hollywood set yeah. and going backstage and seeing you in a room with ample snacks. <laughs> you have your sweets, you have yeah. your fruits, you have a little bit of everything yeah. and you're getting makeup put on. It was just, yeah. it, it was one of the coolest things ever. And to see someone that, you know, it's amazing. Yeah. That you've point. seen from like, not being close to that, to having that. But also, I mean, and you're, you're when you, you get to the cancellation, but like when you're in that chair and when you're in that mm-hmm. moment, you know, you don't even predict that, you know, six months down the line, it's not gonna be a show anymore. But sure. Um, I mean, is there any lessons or anything you've learned from some of these ups and downs? And Yeah, actually, you know, the most important lesson I learned was that, um, and it was, and I had it during the production of the show. I said, um, I don't care if people think I'm difficult to work with. I want to make sure that I tell my story because the name of the show is my name. And if the show is canceled, every writer, every person on that show can go off and do another project. For the rest of my life, I will always be connected to my show because it's my name. So I have to make make sure that it's done right. The way I want to tell it, the story I want to tell, because if you let people change your mind or change your story and it fails, then you're never going to know if your vision would have worked or not. And that's the worst feeling to have. That regret, that fucking kills you. So for me, I wanted to have the chance to say, if the ship's going down, there is nothing different I would have done. And that's what I learned is that like, I didn't, you know, I had to stick to my guns and I have, I had to do it my own way. And honestly, if people didn't like it, people didn't get it, then I'm sorry. That's your fucking problem because I, I cannot let other people dictate my voice. That's the thing about standup. The standup is about learning how to, how to have your own voice. It's, a, it's about being authentic and being yourself. So if you have a show, why the fuck are you going to let anybody else change who you are? That's not what got you the show. I mean, that's the thing I had with the, with the show is that people would give me ideas and I'm just like, but that's not me. You guys liked my half hour. You guys liked Conan. So you guys like me. You either like me or you don't fucking like me. So, I mean, that's, that was the only thing. That's the biggest thing in the world. And I think it's so inspiring because it's, it doesn't matter if you have your own show with your name on it, or if you're just a stand up. whatever you're putting out there to the world as your art is you, and that is your name. And so absolutely, I think that's that applies why I, everywhere. I, I'm, I'm very picky about what I do because for me, it's like, uh, I, I'm very picky about what I do because I want, I, I want it to be fun or I want it to matter to me. Even if it, if other people think it's a bad idea, it's a good idea to me. And that's why I'm going to do it. You know, there have been things that I've been offered that I said no to, you know, that um, this past pilot season, I got offered uh, a pilot. I didn't want to do it, you know, and people kept saying, but you're going to be back on TV. I'm like, I I don't want to be back on TV with that. That's not what I want to do. It's like, it's not right. Mm -hmm. It's not right. So I'm going to wait for the right thing or I'm going to do my own thing. It's not right. And, you know, that's the problem with people, with some people that want it now. When they want it now, they say yes to the wrong things. And then they look back and they're like, why the hell did I do that? And I didn't want to do that. For me, again, it's like what we were saying earlier with stand-up. Like, this is what I want to do. This is what I do. So I'm not in it so that I can retire in two years. I'm not in it to retire in five. This is just a marathon. It's like a lifelong thing. And I'm as long as you keep doing it, then you've got to be picky. You got to be picky about what you do. You can't at the beginning. A lot of times you've got to do some things like, you know, when I was really broke, I did gigs. I didn't want to do 
uh, you know, I, I remember there was a, I did a fundraiser for this, um, for this charity and it's, uh, it's about, um, this charity, they, um, they pay parents' stays like near the hospital while their kid is basically dying. Now, I did this gig for 50 bucks and free dinner because I thought 50 bucks, that is gas money, da, 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 da. I didn't want to do it because I, I, it's a sad thing. Like I, I, it was so sad that it made me sad to be in the room. It really affected me. And I remember they did a montage, like 10-minute montage of just kids that had passed away. And then after 10 minutes and here's your stand-up comic, you know, and it's that thing like no tact, no anything. I didn't want to do it, but I had to do it because it was 50 bucks in gas money. The, a lot of gigs, it's like, well, 50 bucks, free food. I'm there, you know, and once you start doing more stuff, you're like, oh, OK, well, you know, and even then, I mean, I still do a lot of charity work or whatever. I do a lot of things to help out when I can. But again, it's like you always have to be. You have, we always have to say yes to the right thing. What makes you comfortable? Because if you're not comfortable, then you can't give it your best. And that and you can tell. You can tell when comics are in it and when they're not in it. And I always want to be in it. So I'm very picky about what I do just because I can be. And you can be because you put in, you know, so much time and effort to get to this point. Yeah, It's absolutely. harder to be pickier at the beginning of your career. Exactly. But you have to, you know, for me, it's like I always had to be picky. A lot of the things I've said no to, um, look, I'll be honest. Last year, I, I got offered a job on The View. It's daytime talk show. I would have been a- yeah, it's a pretty a, big one, I think. Yeah, I would have been a co-host. You Maybe you've heard of it. Um, I said no. It didn't feel right. That's not what I wanted to do. I didn't want to, the women were great. You know, the environment, the people were great. It's not that I had a problem with the people involved in the project, the project itself. I couldn't do it. Like I I didn't want to top of the show, talk about like Donald Trump and the election and then go to commercial, come back. And now I'm giving you cleaning tips for the spring. Like it just, it wasn't me, you know? And I knew that. And I, you know, um, I knew that I was saying no to something that a lot of people would say yes to. But mm-hmm. oh, me saying no is what makes me different. Yeah, uh, You know, it was that thing where I, I always come to, I always approach it this way. If I had it once, I can get it again. If it's meant to be, it's going to be meant to be. If I can, if I did it one time, I'll do it another time because now I know more. Now I know better. And I feel like when you told me about that, the view thing a few months ago, as soon as you said no, a do- another door opened. Yes. Yes. Immediately. Like I said no. And for maybe a week. I sat down in my apartment. I'm thinking, uh, did I do the right thing? Like, you know, you start questioning yourself immediately because that's what we do. That's uh, people love to question themselves. And I finally said, no, you did it. Uh, look, everything you do, you can't have regrets because even if it doesn't work out, you learn something from it. Well, and you talked about, I mean, you told me about that immense pressure, but it was not just the pressure you put on yourself, but you know, representation and people around you, everyone's like, are you crazy? Yeah. Well, because it, the first time I said no, uh, people thought I was negotiating. So then they come back with more money so and then cool. I'm like, oh no, I really don't want to do it. They're like, ah, you want more money? And I said, no, 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 no. Like I really, I don't want to do it. I, I can't even tell you, I can't even simplify it in, in, in a better way. I don't want to do it. And you know, that was the thing. It was just, I couldn't do it. And now I 
I like say, I like saying no. I like saying yes, but it's like every yes no that I say is uh, immediately what I want to do at that moment. And yes, another door opened, and I can't talk about it yet. And I wish I could, but it was something that that's really cool that I wanted to do. And uh, looking back, I know if I had said yes, I couldn't have done this other thing. Mm-hmm. And it just happens. Well, you know, one of the themes of the show is you know talking to people that say yes and no and why. And, you know, this is a reminder that, you know, we're, we're all our own gatekeeper. Yeah. And we always have the ability to say yes and no and pick the projects we want to do. And just looking at your career to this point, I think this is so inspiring to so many people, including me, like, because you've shown like, you know, like, you know, going out for JFL six times mm-hmm. and submitting to late night and Comedy Central dozens of times and then finding your way around it. You know, these are all gates, yeah. you know, that are in place that... And you found ways in that you know, aren't typical. My career has been very different from a lot of people's. Um, I have been, I, I have never, I've never been the cool kid. I've always kind of been by myself on my own. I just really always thought that, I always think that if you put in the work, people will pay attention. You know, uh, my friend and I have said like, um, if you're good, Someone will give you something at some point. You will never go to an open mic and see someone that's absolutely amazing that's never gotten a chance. Never. You're never going to go to an open mic and see Lady Gaga and everybody's like, man, this chick's amazing and no one gives a shit. Like no one's ever given her anything. You got to do the work. I mean, if you put the work in, it's that, what is it? It's the Steve Martin quote. Like be so good they can't ignore you. I mean, it's, I... I gave up on so many things and when I stopped wanting them and chasing them so aggressively, they ended up happening in some other form or another. I never did new faces. Uh, For me as a kid, like as a comic in Dallas back then I wanted to do premium blend. Sure. I wanted to do the half hour uh, comedy central presents. Uh, Then I'd get the hour on comedy central and then maybe like I would put on a couple albums and maybe if, if, you know, and God knows whatever, like I, cause again, I didn't expect the show. Um, Premium blood ended and uh, didn't get on that. Um, ended up doing live at Gotham in 2007. That was my first TV spot and I ate it. Um, Did it air? Oh, it aired. <laughs> it aired. Well, yeah. I mean, you say ate it, but well, like, you it's really? Like, yeah. Uh, let's just say that that was around the time that, uh, that I had, uh, it was, it was around a time where, uh, people weren't very nice to me and, uh, you could tell I didn't do well. Why did, why are they not nice to you? Because that was, that was the time that I was working with somebody that had a bad reputation. Right, right, right. So because I worked with somebody that had a bad reputation, I had the bad reputation too. Mm. So, um, it was pretty rough. It was a a bad timing for Live at Gotham and, uh, submitted to the half hours and nothing, 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 JFL, nothing, nothing, nothing. And, um, I mean, anything that you could have wanted that was cool. I never got, I never really got a lot of the things that I, I wanted to get. And I started doing, you know, I started doing colleges and, it's funny in the college market, a lot of times people, uh, I would be gone for months. I'd come back and people had thought, people thought I had given up on standup. 
like people thought I'd quit because they never saw me around town. And that's another thing. It's it's so weird that in standup, uh, a lot of comics think that if, if you're not around, you gave up. They never, a lot of them don't even think, hey, they might be working on the road. You know, mm-hmm. it was just kind of like, people were so so surprised to see me. Like I was a ghost from a Scooby-Doo cartoon. Like, <laughs> what, but you've been dead for 30 years, you know? And it's, it's so, it, it's really funny how um, I went off and did the college market and was kind of invisible. It's hard when you're invisible doing the college market because when you come back into town, you're in town for like a couple weeks or so. You don't get spots at the local clubs because people don't know you. They're not familiar with you. They don't, you know, they're just like, well, where have you been? Oh, I've been on the road. Have you? And then you get the spot and then you go up and you have a solid set because you've been doing the work out in Iowa, Mm -hmm. out in Nebraska. You know, I mean, you just do it. I have to say. In 2012, I did a college gig. Oh, I tried to do a college gig in the South. And one of the lowest, worst things that had happened to me, I tried to check into the hotel and the uh, guy at the hotel refused to check me in because I was brown. Mm. Didn't even bother looking at the computer. Just said, you're not on the list. Like, you're not in the books. I was like, oh, but I wouldn't even look. He's like, you got to go. Gotta go. Now, this is what, this is, actually, you know what? It was probably like 2014. It was recent. It wasn't that long ago. And I remember leaving and thinking, the fuck just happened? Like, what the fuck just happened? And I remember calling my agents and I started bawling. I'm like in, it was in North Carolina. I was outside of the hotel crying because I'm thinking, I I don't want to be here. I'm scared for my life because of the way he treated me. And it was one of those moments where I'm like, Christelle, you're in the middle of nowhere. What the fuck are you doing? Like, you have just been treated like shit. What are you doing? And I thought to myself, I'm like, I'm doing what I want to do. And I just know that this isn't the place for me to do it right now. Right. And I left and I thought, fuck, like those moments, it's like one of like the moments. How much of that have you experienced? A lot. Quite a bit. It's hard. I mean, the gates are even that much more difficult. Yeah. People don't think about it. You know, it's funny. um, A lot of times people don't think about, you know, that because for them, it's not a reality or, you know, it's and it's weird because when I tell people about certain things that happen, they find it hard to believe but it's like, why would I lie about that? Mm-hmm. I don't want to tell stories where I look bad. I want to tell stories where I look good. But I want to tell you this is a thing that I experience. Do you know how hard it is to drive around the country by yourself, knowing that like there's certain places where you just don't feel comfortable? I mm-hmm. mean, it's kind of frightening, you know. Like people, people are rude to you. They're they're they do things to you and. You know, you drive down the highway and there's billboards that say uh, Mexicans go home that, and you're playing that town. You know what I mean? I remember do, I did a, I did a town. I want to say in Ohio. This college was very liberal. I drove in. I don't even remember where I, maybe Columbus. I drove in. Uh, it was nighttime. And one of the students said, look, we're very cool here. The town isn't. So there was a FedEx plant in the town. They came in and, and, and you know, uh, kind of did, did a sweep with a lot of uh, immigrants that were there. And uh, a lot of the people in the town have a problem with Latinos. So we're cool. 
But, you know, because I was staying the night, they're like, in the morning when you wake up, you might have signs in yards that say really awful things about Latinos. And that's not us. That's the town and that's separate. When you get that kind of warning, you get the fuck out of there right after the show. Yeah. Because it's like, uh, the fact that they had to give me that warning says so much. And I am a girl by myself in the middle of nowhere. I did the show. I got my check and I got the fuck out of there. And I, you know, I probably ended up at a motel six or something like that is frightening. Again, it's one of those moments. Why the fuck am I doing it again? I'm doing it because this is what I want to do. Despite all of those moments, I'm still doing it. Yeah. That's love. And so as a Latino woman, I mean, just in the industry, how is that? affected it's uh it's tough you know because um i remember years ago i was at a production meeting for a show that i was working on and uh the executive producer was trying to tell people what what women are like and the executive producer was a man (laughs) and uh he was you know he was kind of showing he was kind of he was saying i remember this he was saying that the typical american woman is uh a pretty blonde that's very thin gets her hair and nails done all the time that's basically what his idea of an American woman was. And I was like, well, I think I'm more average actually than, than what you're describing. I'm pretty casual. I do my hair when I can, but it's usually up in a ponytail. I wear t-shirts and hoodies, da da da. And I remember he was like, well, yeah, but that's your problem though. Like if you were 30 pounds lighter, you'd, uh, you'd be hot. And that's your problem that you don't realize that like in front of everybody, you know? And that, he is a guy that thought that every Latina woman had to look like Sofia Vergara. If you don't look like that, then you're, you're screwed. You know, it's like, Oh, Christelle, I'm sorry. You have to, you have to have a good personality to make it because you don't have the looks. That is craziness. And that is insane. Yeah. The fact, I mean, I don't, I see a lot of dudes out there that like they never get told like, Hey, how about losing that beard? You know what I mean? Like they never get critiqued like that. That day I felt, I went home and felt like shit and hated myself because somebody just basically said, what the hell is wrong with you? You don't look like what a woman is like. This is my idea of a woman, a white blonde girl, and you don't fit that. And you're, you're bullshit. That's the kind of shit that I've kind of dealt with. Yeah. Even with the show, with the TV show, there have been comics who are acquaintances of mine that will say, man, I wish I was Brown so I could get my own show must be nice that you can exploit your family like that. I wish I had a family like that to make fun of. Oh, like, oh yeah. Cause you know, the industry's just giving out TV shows to Brown people all the time, right. but you get one and you get one. Hey, you black, you get two. Like, you, you know, like that's not happening. It's like, and the thing is, is that they don't even realize that they're saying something that's so fucked up mm-hmm. that you're just like, Oh, like you don't, you're not even aware of it, you know? And despite that, you keep plugging into it because for me, I feel there's very few Latina comics out there. I can count maybe three, four of them that I, that work, um, that work normally, regularly. Uh, For me, the way I see it, I think it kind of goes with the female comic thing. I do shit so that hopefully the next generation of people like me don't have to go through it. I did a club that's, I've done it before years ago where 
the the manager says the owner hates women. They don't she they don't think women are funny. So you have to come in and headline back then a full week from Wednesday to Sunday for nine hundred bucks. Now, I find out that my friend just did that club and got fifteen hundred, but he's a guy. Mm. So I have to go and I I do it because I need the money. I I I need that nine hundred bucks, you know, and I do it, and I have really good sets, and I don't go back to the club. And I do it because I wanted to show that club that women could be funny. And the, fa- the fact that I have to go do that because I need the money. And also I wanted to prove a fucking point because yeah. they tried booking me back again. And I refused to fucking go back to that club. The fact that they tried to book me again, I would tell my agent, tell them, tell, tell them that women aren't funny. They, they just said that women aren't funny. So they fucking go find your fucking funny women. Like, you know, and they started doing uh, and they started booking more women after that. It's not me. It's not, I didn't have anything to do with it. I mean, but if I'm one of the names that they can maybe think of as a group, then yeah, I think I've maybe helped out a little bit. I mean, absolutely. You've helped out, you know, even as a, like, you know, Latina, as a Latino comic, Latino comics, we get, we get pushed aside constantly, you know? And I want to make sure that people know that, you know, Hey, how about you just fucking give us a shot to prove ourselves? I go through these hoops. I do it. I've had a lot of shitty things said to me and I take it and I fucking take it because my job is to open the door and try to keep it open so that other people can come in. I take it, you know, it's, it, I use this quote all the time. It's like uh, Michelle Obama in the last convention said, um, we make sacrifices so that the next generation doesn't have to. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how I approach stand up and just the entertainment industry. Like, I take shit and I go through shit so that hopefully the next person like me doesn't have to fucking go through it because it's bullshit. Yeah. And I mean, since, you know, you started doing television stuff in the last three or four years, have you seen any progress? Do you feel like that is changing at all? Uh, yeah. You know, it's funny. I, people want to capitalize on, on the Latino community right now. You get all these facts and figures. That's what I learned from having the TV show is that they, they give you all these numbers and they're like, we don't know what to do with these numbers, you know? And I've said it, I use this as an example all the time. They say, um, I want to say maybe it's like uh, Latinos make up 25% of all movie going audiences. I know that because I was told that fact. I don't give a shit. Like who gives a shit? And they're like, ah, we need to do a Latino movie now. It's like, why do you have to do a Latino movie? I love Die Hard. I like Die Hard because it's a good movie, not because there's like pinata in it. Like not because there's a mariachi in it. Like not because you're trying. It's just a fucking good story. You know, it's like, it's funny. I do see progress. I, I see more people of color on TV and it's a slow thing, but we don't only need people of color on the screen. We need it behind the screen. We need people to write those stories that are authentic and real so that People of color that are on, you know, on the screen doing it are actually telling a story that resonates with people mm-hmm. like that. You know, it's a slow moving needle. It's slow moving. And hopefully, hopefully by the end, when I am, you know, done, I will look back and say my time. I saw this go from here to over here. Big leap. And that's all I can do. Well, that's fucking amazing and ambitious and doable. And you're doing it right now. And I think this is a good place to um, wrap it up. Yeah, let's do it. But not quite. Yeah, I mean, what, um, what, so you're working on some projects. Yeah. 
some pretty cool stuff in the hopper. Yeah. Where, 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 where's Cristela in 10, <laughs> 20 years? Um, honestly, in 20 years, I would like to, uh, the goal is to have my own production company where I can help out, um, minorities, uh, help their, get their projects on TV and film. I, are, are Jews a minority? Anybody that doesn't feel like their voice has been heard is a minority to me. I Anybody that doesn't fit in. The- yeah. <laughs> I feel like. In I, don't know, ten- I feel like Jews aren't represented enough in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> when are you going to have your days? <laughs> I want to, I want to I, I be able to do stand up. Um, I do stand up for a while, take a break, focus on helping people's stories get told because for me, um, I want to give people the chance that I never thought I had. So that that's kind of where I see myself. I see myself hopefully doing stand up for the rest of my life to the extent that I want, but also to be able to help people get to the level that they want. Because I mean, if you can't help people, then why the fuck are you doing it? Ugh, that's what it's all about. Well, this has been awesome. Where could people find you on the internet? Uh, Instagram, Twitter. I'm at Cristela9. Uh, Facebook at Cristela Fans. If you have MySpace, I'll join. Fuck it. Um, Periscope, Snapchat, everything. ICQ, classmates.com. And my website, uh, CristelaAlonzo.com. And uh, you can find uh, where I'm going to be at uh, there. Well, pro- chances are I'll probably be at an improv comedy club near you. <laughs> and finally, I think everyone that's listening wants to know this. What are those hot cleaning tips for spring? <laughs> you know, actually, here's a g- really good cleaning tip. I used to work at an opera theater doing wardrobe for a couple seasons. Here's a great tip. If you have something that's dry clean only and you don't have the time to do it, this is how you get rid of any bad odors. Get half a bottle of cheap vodka, mm-hmm. mix it with half a bottle uh, with a uh, f- mix the rest of the bottle with water, shake it up and spray it on the clothes and the vodka actually removes all the sweat stains and like the smells and stuff like that. Anything rancid, like smoking or anything until you can take it to a dry cleaner. Well, that's a fun fact. How about that? (laughs) Good to know. Um, Well, get clean, some spring cleaning. (laughs) I do stand up. It's so bad that I'm a Latina giving you cleaning tips. Like that's so ridiculous. (laughs) But um, it's, I, I not only do stand up, but I actually, I'm here to save your clothes and make them last longer. Well, you have to come back soon. More tips. This was just, it was your passion. Um, it's palpable. Thank you. And I think that anyone listening will get a lot out of it. And um, let's check back in soon. I love right, you, Cristela. Cool. And this love is how I, um, oh my God, my quote. So at the end of every show, I end with my, my mantra for success and I didn't <laughs> print it, um, but I believe it. No, it is here. work on your craft endlessly be a professional be undeniable and be cool as fuck always we'll see you next time for more episodes of gatekeeper you can subscribe to us on itunes or wherever you listen to podcasts you can find me online at jamieflam.com and at jamieflam on twitter a very special thanks to the sideshow network the hollywood improv Andrew Stevens, Sean Merrick, Roddy Swearingen, and producer Buddy Peace for the awesome music at the top and end of this episode. And be sure to check out hollywood.improv.com for updates on great new shows coming up in the main room and the lab. Punched in the heart, in the throat, in the kneecaps too. That's how 
so beautiful So beautiful So beautiful Never looked so beautiful Beautiful So beautiful